Hello and a very warm welcome to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston School of Art. Today we're chatting with two young architects, G. Liu and Jamie Wallace, founders of Wallace Liu, founded in 2014 and based at Alexandra Road, Neve Brown's housing estate in North London. They've just completed a major project in Chongqing, and so this podcast is to talk about setting up a practice and working in China. We're all in lockdown at the moment, so this interview is done by the power of technology. So thank you very much indeed, both of you, uh, for joining me. So first of all, can you just tell us about yourselves, uh, both of you, just like where you studied, why you studied architecture? Uh, yes, I can. Well, thanks very much for having us, Austin. It's nice to talk about uh, all this stuff that we've been doing in China, particularly the kind of working methods and the professional side and the business side of it, which I think is particularly interesting. So, yeah. but I studied in in Manchester for undergraduate and postgraduate. I graduated in 2008. And why did I study architecture? Well, it's kind of one of those things that you, I don't know, one of these decisions you make when you're 16 or 17 years old and you really have no idea about the world. It's so, all a terrible accident. Yeah, in, in a way it is. I mean, the genuine answer is my mum came back from the library with a, with a kind of bunch of, uh, these are different careers you might be interested in. And I just kind of picked one. Because <laughs> it sounded it sounded interesting. What about you, Jimmy? Most of my education was received in China, so I had a undergrad degree, which is five years architecture and urban design course in China, and followed by a full scholarship master degree um, tutored by Professor Liu Keqiang, based in Xi'an. And so, so my yeah, most of my education come from this university called XAUAT. So during my master's uh, course in China, I had one year study in the Bartlett, and I was doing an urban design course, and now after that, I kind of graduated and carried on working in London. So that kind of fundamentally shifted my life course. It's interesting about China, isn't it? It almost follows what uh, Jamie's saying. Many people in China study for the Gaokao without any idea necessarily about yeah. what they want to study in university. Was yeah. that you? Well, it's, it's not <laughs> It's not the case with me, actually. I want to study fine art. Uh, but then my parents can talk me over saying that's not practical at all. So, so ironically, they suggested that if you want to be financially stable study architecture. <laughs> I went to uni when it was uh, 2003, and that was when the time when construction is absolutely absolute booming in China. Very good, very good. All right, so we've had a little bit of, of uh, background, but in terms of where you practiced, there's six years before you set up in practice. So what was the intervening period? Where did you get your experience? Yeah, well, I did. Well, so first of all, in 2004, I did my year out at a company called Landscape Projects in Manchester, who are landscape architects, working on kind of quite urban projects. And then I stayed, I worked part-time for them as well during the part two. And then in 2008, I went to Rotterdam and worked for a company called McCrina Lavington Architects, which is a British company based out there. And I worked there for three years. And then I came to London, I think 2010 or something like that. And I carried on working for McCrina Lavington, but for their London office. Straight away when I arrived, we went into the recession and suddenly worked right up. And so we were kind of, I don't know, doing like office admin for a while, you know, sorting out image libraries and things like that. But then actually we started doing small master planning projects for local authorities around London. And then slowly you saw it over the years as work started to improve we were doing bigger projects for proper developers right and gee remind mm. us where you were I'm, I'm not qualified in the uk my my work experience started very early on actually um because in china when, once you start a master's degree you're working as a apprenticeship essentially in any professor's practice yeah. so it's, it's actually a full-on professional practice i was working in uh, i was in xian when i graduated in london i kind of worked briefly with muff quite a feminist group 
interesting work because I was very interested in bottom-up approach in terms of urban design and, and building environment in general, in small uh, intervention, etc. Though this other problems comes with it in terms of running <laughs> the tiny uh, macro interventions. And after that, I kind of jumped through quite quite a few small practices, then ended up working for Avanti Architects. Uh, who was kind of mostly doing healthcare, uh, schools, and lately residential buildings. Yeah. Okay. So how did you both then get to, not how did you both get together, that's none of my business, but how did you both come <laughs> to form a practice? Well, I guess they're kind of related. What happened basically is that we, I was extremely curious about China. Uh-huh and about what was happening out there. And, you know, we'd had lots of conversations about it. And so we'd decided that we'd quite like to go out there and do something. So my old boss, Gerard Macrina, he actually started off by asking us if we wanted to go and set up a kind of offshoot of their office out there in Shenzhen. So, you know, without much thought, we just kind of said, yeah, and went off and did it. But then, you know, you kind of negotiate, we then started negotiating the deal whilst we were out there. And we decided we didn't really like the kind of the deal that was on the table. So we just decided to go for it ourselves at that point. Well, one of the things I read on, on your website is this, the word adaptive reuse keeps cropping up quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so I just wonder if you could explain, I mean, generally what that means, but obviously also in the Chinese context, it's not something that many people in the West kind of associate as a phrase, you know, with, with China, the idea that China tends to knock things down a lot and build new rather than maybe kind of use refurbishment and regeneration as their starting point. Our perspective on um, adaptive reuse is, is much more focused on existing built environment or existing subject, something that's old, and regardless in terms of whether it's definitely historically significant or whether it's absolutely listed. So the listing status is not our starting point in terms of working with a recognised kind of historic environment. Because for our projects on adaptive reuse um, includes, for example, a, a highway adaptation, uh, an infrastructure that was in China was built kind of 10 years old and is already kind of of date or kind of not serving the right purpose anymore in the general post-rationalisation of the cities. So that's also how we um, started working in China on that because we kind of luckily called the wave of this uh, new era of post-rationalisation in general generalized Chinese urban cities where things were built so quickly in the past 30 years and they quickly off date. Many areas become very problematic in terms of how to encourage new urban life or how to encourage public to care to enjoy the space. And on top of that, in China, there's a growing interest in kind of uh, developing, attracting tourism uh, based on uh, existing built or historic built environment from a very thematic perspective. And that also is attached to larger area of speculative property development. So there's a whole established package in terms of why by reuse the existing old historic environment, we could generate new interest, in particularly economic interests. That's where we got very lucky. And of course, uh, that economic drive in China can be so much stronger than the, the recognition of the cultural value, which might be a starting point. In China, it does happen where you have a lot of large schemes and that's kind of done in a very pastiche way in terms of all repackaged. It's all about packaging, much less about what is the actual value or the understanding of details of the uh, build envelope. I also read that you were the co-founder of Dokimomo in China, yes. which kind of fits into this, I'm assuming. So are you leading a drive to have a better understanding of value outside the economic value? Is that part of your reason for doing it? Uh, well, yes, absolutely. Um, when I studied with um, Professor Liu Keqiang, who is a very established, a very well-recognized 
architect in, in conservation in general in China. It's much more on historical conservation, much less on uh, modern conservation. So, and also um, from uh, 2011 to 2013, I worked in Avanti. So I started to understand the subject holistically. And in, 20, in 2012, early 2012, I completed a study thesis based on uh, modern conservation practice in the UK and much more focusing on the practice uh, perspective of that subject and much less on the, the theoretical direction of what's happening. And that led to my resume of conversation with Professor Luca Chung and uh, so he kind of introduced his interest in kind of rediscovering or kind of try to understand the modern conservation. So that conversation led to me getting the supporting members of other Dokomomo registered nations to provide letters in supporting us setting up the Dokomomo China and uh, that was eventually realized in 2012 in the Helsinki Dokomom conference. Very good, very interesting. The adaptive reuse thing is not the same conceptually uh, to what would otherwise be just seen as protecting, preserving uh, and conserving an existing structure, but also the, the fact that your practice does landscape as well, which Jamie, you were saying, is, is what you did a lot with um, Macrina Lavington and with your kind of studies. So again, how do you kind of bring those two together, that idea of taking a building to preserve it, its essence in some ways, and then how do you set that into some kind of landscaping urban context? Yeah. Well, there's the... Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to... I, I, I can try a little bit. Thing, maybe yeah, go thing. On. Both Jamie and I have worked on landscape projects as well as architectural projects before establishing Wallace Liu together. And also, we both always had interest in the area that's in between landscape and architecture, which means, you know, you don't just look at the envelope as a complete shell and that's the end of the story we always wanted to explore was that transitional space before you enter or during the time you're entering and and once you're leaving is is where where we think drama can be created in any of the project we're working on and the other question which is the kind of evolution from conservation to adaptive reuse because if you look into quite a lot of uh, articles published by John Allen in the 90s, he talked a lot about why it is necessary to look at potential uh, adaptations as well as preserving envelope, in particular on the modern architecture subject, because the building needs a new life to be alive. And these buildings, particularly modern buildings, regardless as a factory, industrial building, post-industrial building, or it is a residential building across all categories, they were not initially built to last forever. They were, they were never built in the way they're supposed to be preserved in a very precise way, looking for every trace of patina. Ever since then, I started to think whether there is a new way of understanding conservation, particularly given Chinese context, which, because of the lack of listing system to look at the building environment holistically, what happened in China in the past 30 years is as well as being knocked down, things are preserved also, but people only preserve a specific building, for example, pagodas, temples, or other particularly significant building. So in a way, you are always entering a story once you, once you approach those historical you know, uh, buildings, you always feel very surreal because you have this kind of very sharp transition from what's absolutely kind of contemporary bunkers going into this kind of absolutely historic environment in isolation. So for me, if we just rigorously preserve every detail in, in that kind of surreal historic situation and kind of uh, marching forward in everything else we do. Maybe there's something in between a time transition where we could possibly understand the environment through a much more moderated way. 
in it because I think that it fundamentally this kind of landscape architecture thing fundamentally stems from an interest in how buildings kind of sit in the city or the landscape as, as well as the kind of iconography or image of the building itself you know I think that's where it comes from. Well that's a good impassionate defense of adaptive design there's like how does one get commissions and then how does you get commissions? Could you oh, quick... classified information. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I'm, not after, I'm not after your contacts. Just in terms of any, I mean, just maybe one or two clear differences in the way that it works in China to the way it works over here. Well, I think that the first thing, I was thinking about this the other day, the first primary difference, particularly for a small or just starting up practice in China, is that the kind of general work stream that you might get here of kind of small extensions to houses or one-off houses, that doesn't really exist in China. You're kind of entering the market either as kind of interior design, doing shops or, or think or somebody's flat, maybe even that's quite rare. Or you have to compete with the big guys doing public tenders or kind of through connections to state or private developers. So this, in a way, allows you to kind of play a part in those bigger projects, but also makes it extremely difficult. You know, I think that's a kind of really fundamental difference. Well, the Chongqing Industrial Museum was an interesting one because we were asked to be a part of this competition for a different site in the city, which also involved heritage, actually a really old part of the city. And so we were looking at a big kind of master plan next to that, uh, which we came second in, in the end. But the client or part of the client is the, or was the client for the museum. And so they, that's how we kind of met them and got involved with them. So the kind of initial disappointment of missing out on that one actually kind of led to us being asked to, you know, their project was stuck. They had an architect, but they weren't happy with the work. So they asked us to do a concept design. And then from that, we were employed for the whole package. I just want to add a little bit onto what Jamie was mentioning, the, the general differences in being commissioned in China and in the UK. Before the differences, I think there's something in common. As a young practice, it's very hard to get commissions, regardless being in China or the UK. I mean, it's slightly easier in China. Um, a large quantity of young professional being flooded into the market and there's so much needed to be done. So it generally, people kind of familiarize themselves, the client familiarize themselves with dealing with younger architects and, and recognize that young sort of ambitions in a way, and that ambition can be rewarded or somehow being respected, which, which I think is much harder in the UK to kind of go out there and be, be seen as very ambitious. They forget what you want. Because in 2013, we arrived back to China with not very much personal contacts. All I could have done uh, was to go all around the country, chasing every lease possible. So somehow the, our passion was rewarded very much with particularly older generation who kind of seen the city being destroyed uh, somehow in their eyes, uh, wanted the young generation to come back and do something for good. Uh, so that was simple interest and the starting point to get us into competitions. Um, and so we know the competition is real. The, so then demonstrate the passion throughout consistently throughout the whole journey, which led to the same person that recommended us to some other jobs and etc. Right. The timescale. So when you get the gig, again, the, the general perception of China is that it's kind of all hands to the wheel. You just have to throw caution to the wind and just work 24-7 in order to get the thing done at a rapid rate. That's the perception of China, isn't it? Stuff gets yeah. built very, very quickly. Uh, so do you want to, again, just explain what the timescale was? Were you working to a client's kind of urgent program or were you working to your own resource program? Uh, particularly on the museum project, it was a very, very tight program uh, because the client has gone through a few architects already before they commissioned us. 
so they kind of lost all the time and money and patience. When you, um, just very quickly, when you say they've gone through a lot of architects before you, what does that mean exactly? Because they have initially commissioned other architects to, to develop the uh, general larger scheme and, and, do, and design the museum as well, but they were disappointed by the design results and that was never resolved. And plan, planning wasn't happy with the result either. So, so they found us in the moment where the scheme was generally stuck um, after five years of initial commission. So that was a long time. So when it came to us, uh, the clan has lost all the patience and, and budget, so a lot of the budget as well. <laughs> and the museum, the, the actual commissioned bill area has shrunk a lot as well compared with the original 2011 proposal. So, so yeah, so that was a situation was a very tight schedule. We work with a very large local LDI who is also the lead uh, so this is very similar to a design and build project in the UK, where the contractor they can strictly uh, understands and controls the budget as well as de delivering the actual uh, project. So we uh, not have to win the heart of the client. We have to somehow convince the LDI to deliver what we wanted to deliver as well. Just very quickly, can you just explain to the listeners the LDI local design industry and all this, how that works in China? They are gigantic architectural companies. Uh, kind of all-in-one service. So they have all the engineering, M&A, every, every, all, every possible department that was necessary, including switching towards, uh, so they control the budget, they, they're monitoring the whole build process and etc. So they will be commissioning, ideally, on behalf of the client, appointing or uh, the architect, from architects to contractors to suppliers and etc. So and for us, they were in a way, on the museum, they were our client, but they were also our executive architect. Yeah, so does that, what, what does that mean in terms of your control of the design and the, and the budgetary requirements then? Well, I mean, yeah, the control of the design is a very, as it is here with the design and build contract, it's just an extremely challenging thing to be involved in, and it relies on your ability to influence people, you know, more than anything, right? So it's about being kind of adaptable as a person being, knowing where you can push people where you need to step back and you know, all of these kinds of things are really critical but we developed because well we did the street first through that process we learned a lot about how to influence the system where the the general problems were in both the kind of design process like the first stages and also the delivery process of the of the build and so we were able to apply a lot of that logic to the museum to kind of influence it just very quickly i mean it's, it's, it's interesting that you call it the street in fact, it's called an avenue in China. But but just explain the, the project for those people who may not. Yeah, so it was a. I mean, it was a really fascinating place. It kind of related in a way because it was infrastructure that was built by the city. It was a highway, so a motorway basically, uh, through the north of the city to inspire growth. Right. So the the idea was that they would sell plots of land around it. It would allow the city to expand. But only, after only kind of well, how long was it there? Ten years or something. Mm. Uh, less than, 10, less years, than 10 years so a developer a big also a big developer had purchased the plots along the, the thing and they kind of recognized that this was no place to set you know for people to live firstly or for them to sell the flats and the shops that they were going to build on it so they asked us to look at how we could redesign this street how we could change it or this motorway to be more you know conducive to a quality of life and that led to us pushing them quite far really in terms of what it could become so it's more like a kind of community street it's like a park a linear park that you can drive through that's how i describe it and this was one of the benefits i think of us having worked in the uk and then going to work in china is that we're we were quite used to having 
complex client groups and stakeholders involved in a project, which is maybe not the case generally in Chinese projects. And so here you had the actual highway was owned by the local authority, the plot of land and the, some of the payment was owned by the client. You know, and then you had the highway engineers that were interested in it, the high level city planners that were interested in it as a strategic infrastructure. And so for us, as a kind of British, but also a Chinese practice, we were able to navigate our way through that where most people, most practices in China might not be able to, you know, an LDI wouldn't be able to do that because they'll be too interested in pleasing the client right, and the government yes. to get the next job. Whereas a wholly foreign company wouldn't be able to culturally engage with, with planning or highways in a, yes. in a decent way. And, and because we are foreign, it was very, it was much easier for the client to take us to all the planning meetings, crucial stri uh, strategic planning meetings, but introduce our perspective to the planners and not be, displeasing yeah we could be honest exactly <laughs> and that's what the client wants. that's something we can offer the client as a service what you mean is, is that a you as a foreign practice you bring a little bit of kudos to the client in the meetings and b they expect you to be non-deferential and bring some critical thought yeah to meetings, right? yeah and, and our particular advantage was that we could be fluid in that sense we could do yeah. both we could be a chinese yeah. company if we wanted to be mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. Yeah, so on the, on the street, the kind of result of that was to reduce the size of it, to build out the pavement, basically, and turn it into a two-lane, you know, just a normal kind of road or whatever. But the government couldn't accept that because for them it would be an admission that they had kind of built too much in the first place. You know, so they'd be considering it as a kind of downgrade. Through the negotiation, we were able to basically make the road disappear by completely paving it over, removing all the lines, you know, the markings, removing all the signage, because for them, that would be considered an, up, an upgrade, you know, but without that ability to have the conversation, we could never have got there. Because supposedly, in, in highway engineering term, we're downgrading the roads, but they say we must call it upgrade, the old scheme can go ahead. Yeah, but in, in a way, it was a kind of far more radical solution, but they could accept it, which yes, is fascinating. We're living in changed times, right? So there's kind of before coronavirus, where we could have had this conversation about what the future holds, and we could have been a little bit more definitive about it. Whereas now that we're in the time of Corona, things might be slightly different. So you might want to answer this two different ways or bring your own level of uncertainty to it. But I was just wondering what you would say to anybody who wanted to break into the Chinese market. You've kind of hinted at it here that you need to have connections and understanding the rules and the regulations and having Guanxi networks would be always useful. But if somebody wanted to start up an architectural practice or use the opportunity to kind of flee the West and go somewhere which still has a resonance of dynamism. Uh, yeah. what, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, can I just jump in there with one thing? Because I think that fundamentally it is, you've got to be going there for the right reasons. And the wrong reason is to go there thinking China is an ATM machine, you know, and I can just burn a load of cash out of it because you're never going to get anywhere with that attitude. You've got to go there and you've got to treat it with the same seriousness that you would treat doing a project here in the, in the UK and the same passion and the same commitment. And, and that's how you can both get people to believe in you there because they are, will see the same things as clients will hear, but also that's how you manage to get things done. You know? In my opinion, it is not, it's not hard for UK practice to kind of jump into Chinese market and start doing projects. And in fact, many practices has done so from smaller practices to kind of large practices. And uh, there are generally, uh, again, a kind of gigantic international enterprises operating in China and you know delivering hundreds of thousands of projects in the last 30 years and so it's not a hard thing to enter the Chinese market but I think what we have done 
many other British practices has not able to achieve, uh, which made me very proud is that we're able to deliver what we believe in China and deliver to a very high quality, not only, but deliver to the ideology we believe in, which is fundamentally changes how a Chinese client would ever pursue or perceive the, the building, built environment in general, and, and somehow adding up to most uh, up-to-date understanding of the subject into China. Uh, and I think that is something I'm particularly proud of. Probably going back uh, five, ten years, there were lots of architects going there calling China an experimental playground. But then in terms of knowing the language, knowing the building codes, you obviously speak Chinese, Chief, but do you think that's essential? That you know the planning and the building regulations, or you know the language? Yes. Or Being able to speak the language is absolutely essential, but not in terms of speaking Chinese language, the language itself, but being able to really understand what people say behind the words. So many practices might think, you know, if I have a Chinese staff who speaks the language, can translate the documents for me, that's my way in. And I think that understanding is very naive. Well, you're right. You might be able to do a few competitions. You know, you're going to hand that drawing over and it's a different building exactly. that's going to come out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So what about things like uh, working hours? Is it expected that you work for the, at the client's behest? Yeah, before I answer that, can I just talk a little bit about the building codes that you kind of mentioned? Oh, right, yeah, yeah, please, please. Because I, I personally think it's not necessary to know them all. You know, as you probably don't know them all here because you're going to, you are definitely going to be working with a local company that, that is very knowledgeable on those. But I think the key is kind of similar to what I was saying earlier is to do it in the same way that you would do here. And so kind of analyze, don't just expect somebody to come along and translate your sketch or concept into, a, into the same building and resolve it through those regulations. You need to address them early on and analyze what they are you know, learn about the, the key ones and then include those into your design. But it is possible to, to pick them up along the way. You know, what are the key challenges here? What are the basic fire eggs that I'm going to have to deal with? Because we saw, we saw that in the museum, that the fire eggs actually changed halfway through the, well, very, just about, when it was just about to start on site. And so the kind of being able to resolve that into the design was extremely challenging. And even when we would hand over our drawings, and they would be kind of adapted to meet regs. I mean, it takes like 10 rounds of comments and conversation to get it back just to what you were trying to keep hold of. You know, you've got to keep this firm grip around what you've got. And if you have some knowledge about what they are by doing the research, then you're able to inform that a lot better. Yes. Uh, in a way, um, well, in, in terms of how we run our practice in China, uh, we're quite careful uh, about not to be burnt out very early on. Um, because we know there's a long battle ahead, so you can't really exhaust yourself completely. So, so in a way, we kind of we don't necessarily work longer hours than we're supposed to. So it's all about kind of finding the fundamental situation where you need to pull more time on. But on the other hand, you have to be very flexible. So sometimes we might have to get up completely early in the morning, or sometimes almost past midnight. And also frequent tr business travels, you have to be very flexible. There's no early notice in terms of you've had to come to the site or some situation just happened. We usually just always book our flight tickets in the last minute. So, so all you have is to have a really good relationship with all the booking websites, become all the memberships as you can, because <laughs> you always have to change tickets in the last minute also. Uh, a three-day local meeting session might prolong to be five days. But on the human rights subject, mm. on the kind of workers' rights subject, what I saw in the ODI is they, they absolutely working, you know, long hours, as long hours as they can possibly can, away from the family, uh, you know, sometimes for, for days and months. 
to deliver projects in a different province even because the LDI is a giant infrastructure where they have projects all over China. So, so, that, so that is quite challenging. And because of that, what really happens is when we, particularly when you walk into the construction joint phase, what we realize that, yes, it's China's speed. So the LDI will quickly give us a package of drawing. But that package drawing is, is, is wrapped in mistakes after mistakes. And some of them are really fundamental, simple mistake to make. So for, from the drawings I receive, I can see these people are exhausted. They're just not thinking anymore. They become drawing machines. But one of the things that we discovered was that, you know, you're generally dealing with the kind of middle management in the, in the client. Yeah. So the project manager, they generally won't be that old or that experienced. And part yes. of their job, as they see it, is to deliver a lot of work to their boss. And this can just cause your life enormous enormous kind of hassle because they'll ask for rounds and rounds of ideas and sketches and concepts yeah from the client which is completely unnecessary because it doesn't actually get you to a better project so in terms of what g was saying earlier being able to culturally kind of engage properly linguistically and kind of to understand the nuances of it is really key because that means you can actually deal directly with the boss and you can cut away all of that work you know okay let me ask you the the big final question then, which is about the idea that critics will suggest that um, you shouldn't be working, and we shouldn't be, one shouldn't be working in China. If, if you ever come across that argument, how do you deal with it? I have never actually had that asked to me, but of course come across it. Does it apply if you are Chinese? <laughs> yeah, and, and also I don't, well, in terms of being a young architect and being a female architect, I was just being interviewed in terms of how do I feel. It's a difficult practice in China being a young female architect. And I think I was being given more um, right, right, right of thoughts, uh, much more than what I experienced in the UK. Uh, and actually... Time to quickly butt in. So thank you very much for the plug, because obviously my book, New Chinese Architecture, looking at 20 young female architects, is out now, Thames and Hudson. Good early Christmas present. And and also on the other hand, uh, you know, you could understand this as um, a different type of uh, prejudice. So in the UK, you might be applied prejudice in terms of, you know, your turnovers and and, and, uh, annual turnovers and and how you operate and and et cetera. And also whether you are young, a female and et cetera. But in China, you might receive prejudice in terms of how many staff you employ and uh, how established you are. And so, so I wouldn't say in terms of the um, humanitarian uh, is- issues at that kind of no, Yeah, well, there's loads of thoughts, aren't there? So, I mean, the, the personal experience, you know, these kind of individual projects and the individuals that I'm dealing with. So there were state-owned clients. So effectively, we are working for the, the government. Our clients are state-owned. But effectively we're working for individuals who kind of care passionately about delivering a museum or a kind of community street for the very specific people that are there which in the in the context of the street was actually some low lower income housing down the end as, as and kind of integrating that with a new community of more affluent people so you know there's a kind of there's good there as well right and the kind of idea of we didn't go there we weren't treating it as just let's make some kind of sculptures that we find fabulous we were going there thinking how can we deliver better quality buildings how can we fight on the ground for this how can we take this type of design and deliver it and so we were going there i think for the right reasons and then i guess as well on top of that we're not we're not famous by any means and so the influence that we have in terms of working there i'm not sure is very much at all <laughs> yeah well full disclosure obviously i worked there for six years 
as well. So um, yeah, there's plenty to yeah, criticize, but there's plenty to criticize in the West. That's the other strand of the argument, isn't it? In, in a way that you look at Donald Trump, is that really a democratic kind of government and a democratic com country? I knew I'd started not, something. Is that democratic? Is the Queen democratic? <laughs> yeah, we still have. Good answer, is the Queen democratic? Discuss. Right, on that bombshell. Thank you very much indeed. We'll have to round it up there. That was terrific stuff. Thanks to uh, G and Jemmy, founders of Polistio. Uh, really insightful, interesting, conversational introduction to working in China. So please take a look at their award-winning architecture and the landscape project in Chongqing, which is all over the web. And if you want to see it on their website, it's www.wallaceliu.com. That's all for now. Please visit the website on Professional Practice Podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes. Listen to other experts on a wide range of topics and email me at austin.williams at kingston.ac.uk if you want to find out more. Until the next time, thank you very much. Goodbye.